Okay, so um, we are um, at the end. Uh, we've got to the very last talk in our series from the Gospel of John. And as Steve was saying on Tuesday, uh, it is reasonable for us to believe that this is the Gospel of John. That it was probably the Apostle John who wrote it, even though he's not actually identified as the author anywhere in the Gospel itself. Um, as we were thinking on Tuesday, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence which points to John. Um, and also, uh, I don't think Steve mentioned this, but early Christian writers like Arrhenius and uh, Tertullian, a um, couple of names I didn't know until I started looking into it, uh, but they, these guys were a couple of um, writers, Christian writers, who lived in the second century, uh, not long after this gospel was written. Uh, and they believed that the Apostle John um, wrote it. So therefore, we can say there is a strong likelihood that the unnamed disciple that we've come across several times in the passage, that he also is John, because as we've seen already, and it says at the end of today's passage, the unnamed disciple is the author of this book. Whether or not he wrote it all down, or maybe just wrote key sections of somebody else compiled into the finished work, um, we can't tell. Uh, maybe he wrote it all except the last chapter, which as we were, we were thinking on Tuesday, does seem to be a little bit of an add-on, and it does include quite a curious comment about the writer, uh, where it says, we know that his testimony is true. Uh, so that sounds like somebody else endorsing the writer's reliability. Um, but you know what? It doesn't matter. As I've said it before, Acknowledging the anomalies in the Bible doesn't prevent us accepting it as being fundamentally true. And not knowing for sure who actually wrote or compiled or edited or translated the early manuscripts, it just isn't an issue. Because if we believe that ultimately God is the author and that God was involved in every stage of the process, um, we can be sure that we do have his message today. So let's see what that message is for us in the last part of John chapter 21. Before we read the passage, here's a question. Um, what do the following have in common? Uh, and you can um, feel free to unmute yourself and chip in if you think you know the answer. What do these have in common? The brothers of Joseph, King David, Rahab, the woman caught in adultery, the prodigal son. Can't see anybody rushing for their keyboards. Um, well, when um, Joseph was finally reunited with his brothers, the brothers who'd sold him into slavery, he forgave them and gave them a second chance. Rahab, the prostitute, she was considered righteous, it says, because she helped the Israelite spies. And she's commended in Hebrews 11 and James 2, and she's listed in the ancestry of the Lord Jesus. She's the great-great-grandmother of King David. She turned her life around from prostitution because she was given a second chance. Then we have King David, an adulterer, a deceiver, a murderer, but God gave him a second chance when he repented of what he'd done. We read about the woman caught in adultery uh, when we were back in John chapter 8, didn't we? 
Remember what Jesus said to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. She also was given a second chance. And of course, in Luke 15, we have that famous passage about the prodigal son, the guy who left his father, took all the money, squandered his inheritance. But when he repented and returned to his father, he was welcomed back with open arms, wasn't he? And that parable reminds us that God has given us all a second chance. And actually, we often use that phrase second chance when we just mean another chance, because, and you might know this in your own experience, God's capacity to forgive us is never exhausted. Just as Jesus explained to Peter in Matthew 18, um, you remember Peter asked Jesus how many times he should forgive someone who sinned against him, and Peter suggested that maybe seven times would be a good number. But Jesus, when he said not seven times, but 70 times seven, he wasn't actually putting a number on it. He was saying that we should forgive like God forgives without limit. He's the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth and so on and so on. And speaking of Peter and second chances, let's go to our passage now in John chapter 21. On Tuesday, uh, Steve left us on the beach with the Lord Jesus, uh, risen from the dead, having breakfast with his disciples. What happened next? We're reading from verse 15 of John chapter 21, and we're going to go down not quite to the end. We're going to go just to verse 22 for now. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, he was going to betray you. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. We'll leave it there. <clears throat> so, um, back in chapter 18, you can remember a few weeks ago, uh, we saw that Peter denied the Lord. How many times was it? Three times, three times. Here we have Jesus challenging Peter three times, and we have three responses from Peter 
And then we have three commissioning statements from Jesus. So it's all about the threes. And I'd like to talk about each of them uh, in a little bit more detail, um, if I may. Before I do that, I do just want to warn you that I am going to be referring to some of the Greek words that the passage is translated from. Um, maybe that should come with a health warning because, of course, I'm no expert in Greek. Um, few of us are. Uh, but in fact, I couldn't even get myself uh, an O-level in French, um, let alone understand a language from antiquity. Um, but I've done some research uh, and I do think that there is some value in looking at what we often call the original Greek, even though Greek isn't actually the original language at all. And by that I mean, uh, as far as we know, the Lord Jesus and his disciples didn't speak Greek. Uh, they spoke Aramaic. So when we're quoting from the Greek that the New Testament was written in, in some areas, the Gospels especially, we're actually quoting from an early translation. But, and I hinted at this before, just as we trust in the divine inspiration of what was written in the original languages, so we can also trust in God's inspiration of the early translations. And I think today's passage shows evidence of that in the subtle differences that we see between the words which have been used. Well, hopefully we can see that anyway as I go through them. So let's look at those Greek words. First up, three challenges that Jesus put to Peter. Now, there were three questions, really, weren't they? But they were challenging questions because of what Peter had done. Each time Jesus asks, do you love me? Now, the first and second time, the word that the translators used for love is agapeo. That's actually not quite how you pronounce it, I understand, but it's easier to say. So that's the way I'm going to say it today, including the other word that I'm going to refer to, agapeo. And it's understood to mean a much deeper and intense love than the word Jesus used in his third question, which is translated as phileo. And that's generally understood to mean the love of friendship. Now, it's not to say that phileo is a much lesser love than agapeo, because the two words are actually used quite interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Uh, we get an example of that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, where it refers to phileo as the kind of love Christians should have for the Lord. But like I said, agapeo is generally regarded to be a deeper love as we'll see. And I think we can see it more clearly when we, we look at the questions and the answers together. So let's do that. Question one. So this one's in verse 15. And Jesus says, do you love me? So that's the deep agapeo love. He says, do you love me more than these? And I think we can assume the comparison here is with the other disciples. Um, especially because Peter once indicated, and we see this in Mark 14, that he loved Jesus more than the other disciples. So Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples? And Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But he uses the word translated phileo. Yes, Lord, you know 
but I am very fond of you. That's question one. Question two, in verse 16, Jesus asks the same question, again using the word translated agapeo. But this time he leaves out the comparison. He doesn't say more than these. In other words, Jesus appears to be saying, Peter, without comparing yourself to anyone else, do you deeply love me? And again, Peter responds with phileo to express the love of friendship. And now question three, verse 17. What's interesting this time is that when Jesus asks the same question, the translators have used phileo and not agapeo. Accidents? No, I don't think so. Twice Jesus asks Peter if he loves him with the deep love of agapeo, um, which by the way is the, is the love that we find in John 3 and 16. So it is often described as a divine love, although it's not, not exclusively divine love. Um, Peter asks, um, Jesus asks Peter if he loves him with that deep love of agapeo. And twice Peter replies that he does indeed love Jesus, but only with the lesser form of phileo love. And so it seems on this third time when Jesus asks a question, Jesus lowers his expectations to the best that Peter can offer. It's like Jesus is saying to Peter, I know you can't love me in the same way I love you, but for now, can you at least love me like you would love your best friend? There's actually another word here that I think might help us to understand why Jesus uses that different word. Um, I don't think he was using it just to mirror Peter's language. The first and second time that Peter replied, he started off by saying, you know, you know that I love you. And he used a word which just means knowledge in the same way that you and I might know facts about each other. And it's a word that can be used in a greater way as well. It's, we can use the same word to describe the way God knows about everything that we say and do. And he knows how many hers we've got on our heads and, and, and so on. But the third time, Peter says in verse 17, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And he uses a different word for now. He uses a much deeper word. Like he was saying to the Lord, you really know me. You know my heart, my thoughts, you know my weaknesses. You know me better than I know myself. You know that my love is not what it should be. You know it's phileo, we're not agapeo. But you know that my phileo love is absolutely genuine. If I'm not reading too much into this, I think it shows us a, a wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus, that he takes us just as we are. Yes, he sets a high standard throughout the New Testament for every area of our lives, but he also knows deep down what we're capable of. And no doubt that's different for each of us, but without comparing us to anyone else and without ourselves comparing ourselves to anybody else, he asks you and me, he's asking you if you'll love him 
with all that you've got. Think about that. Now, the final three of the conversation is what I referred to as the three commissioning statements. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep and feed my sheep. These are often referred to as the Lord's commissioning of Peter because they're basically a call to service. Um, and despite Peter's earlier denials, this is the amazing thing here, isn't it? We've got Jesus reinstating him to service. This is Peter's second chance. Now, before we look at the three statements, I, I think I should just mention something that's not really highlighted in the passage, but it is very important nonetheless. It's important that we know that not everyone gets a second chance. Not everyone gets a second chance. Because God's forgiveness is dependent on repentance and not everyone is willing to do that. Now with Peter in his um, tears at the time of the denials, um, Remember, it says he went outside and wept bitterly um, when he realized what he'd done. And in everything that we've seen him do after that, I think we can see the evidence of, of Peter's repentance. But do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus asks Peter to declare his love three times, which just happens to be the number of times that he denied him? I don't know, but it appeals to me that Jesus wanted to make the connection very clear to Peter. And maybe it's showing us that if we let the Lord down, as no doubt we all do in big and small ways at different times of our lives, not only is it important that we do repent, but perhaps the expression of our repentance should in some way be commensurate in line with uh, whatever we've done wrong. So you remember Zacchaeus, we were looking at him ages ago now, wasn't it, um, in, in, in our studies. Um, Zacchaeus, a tax collector who repented when Jesus came to his house, and then he showed his repentance by giving back to all the people that he'd, he'd defrauded. In other words, it might not be enough to just say sorry and expect to move on, not without first doing something which shows that our repentance is real. God knows the heart, of course. Um, we're not talking about earning God's forgiveness um, or anything like that. But sometimes it's important to the people around us, those who might also have been affected by our sin, to see something which reassures them that repentance is real. Now, sometimes that might just be buying flowers. But you, you, get, you, 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 get the, you get the point, don't you? Let's go back to the three commissioning statements. So they are... Slightly different, but commentators generally agree that we shouldn't read much into the, the different words which are used here. Um, the separate references to lambs and sheep should really just be seen together as speaking of all the believers who'd formed the early church. And likewise, the different references to feeding and taking care of the lambs and sheep uh, just basically means the same thing. Teaching and taking care of the church in all the areas of need. But this is, this is the point I want to make. I think here we've got a message of hope for 
anyone who ever felt that they didn't deserve a second chance. The fact that Peter was being restored to a leadership position, not just as a sheep, not just being allowed back into the church or into the church as it would be formed, but that he was being called to be a shepherd, someone who would be responsible for caring for the sheep, shows us that Peter was in no way handicapped because of his earlier failings. He wasn't damaged goods. So we see a hint of that in Luke, um, Luke 22, when Jesus said, I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter's understanding of his own weaknesses and failings would actually be his strength. It would be a strength, something that he that would help him in his future service, making him more able to understand, more able to care for others in the church who might be struggling in, in other ways. And it's another lesson for us, isn't it? To know that when God gives us a second chance, he doesn't expect us to then carry the baggage of those past failings. We don't live in the shadow of yesterday. And if that's how God forgives, if that's how God sees us, then that's how we should see and forgive each other. And that's how we should see ourselves too, starting again, unencumbered with a clean sheet. And maybe we have a hint of that at the end of um, verse 19, um, after Jesus had told Peter um, more about the sacrifices that he'd have to make in the future, uh, and that ultimately he would give his life um, um, for the Lord. He takes him all the way back to the first time he called him, three years earlier, at the side of the same lake because he uses the very same words that he first used when he met Peter and he said, follow me. And again, in uh, verse 22, uh, with even more, <laughs> even more emphasis, just in case Peter wasn't quite getting it, you must follow me. He takes Peter right back to the very beginning of his discipleship and he calls him again. He gives him a clean sheet. And for us, without any regard to what other people are doing or thinking or saying about us, it's the same call to each of us, isn't it? Follow me, as we were thinking in our opening hymn. Jesus calls us. Now I'm going to pretty much leave it there. Um, as we've said, this chapter does look like a bit of an add-on to the main gospel narrative. And that's especially true of verse 23, which seems to have been inserted just to quell a rumour that the unnamed disciple wasn't going to die. Um, but for the most part, the chapter really does give us some valuable insights into the last days of the Lord Jesus with his disciples. So if it is an add-on, I think we should be very grateful that it was indeed um, added on. 
Um, but as we've been saying throughout this series of talks, uh, which are now at an end, uh, the uniqueness of John's gospel compared with the other three is his stated aim to present the case for Christ. And now we've heard all the evidence. And like a, a barrister in a courtroom we have in these last two chapters, his final summing up. And if you'll permit me to merge the conclusions from the end of chapter 21 and 20 um, and, and 20 and just put to put them together because it seems like we have two conclusions two ends um, but I think they, they complement each other really well I'm just going to merge those verses and give the last word to the text um, it says this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down we know that his testimony is true. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.